0: You know, what if one of those engineers did want to become a, you know, a solar engineer or what have you that does, you know, works on photovoltaic cells or what, you know, whatnot. Uh, You know, is $5,000 really going to cover any potential tuition that you might need to take? Probably not. It'll help. You know, certainly that's the case. Uh, But the reality is that, again, this transition is not going to be smooth for many.
1: Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be talking to Francis Fong of TD Economics, who co authored a study entitled Don't Let History Repeat Canada's Energy Sector Transition and the Potential Impact on Workers. Welcome to the interview, Francis. Thanks for having me, Markham. Can you give me an overview of your study, please?
0: Yeah. So, so basically what we wanted to do was explore that, uh, you know, as part of, as part of our clean energy transition, as part of, uh, you know, Canada trying to reach its climate change targets of, you know, uh, as part of its Paris climate agreement and trying to reach net zero by 2050, we wanted to take a look at, well, as we're going through that transition, you know, where are we going to see some of, uh, uh, of these potential impacts on carbon intensive industries? What implications might that have on labor? So we took a look at, you know, what scenarios are consistent with, uh, with, uh, a net zero by 2050 target. What happens to oil and gas production? And uh, essentially, we came to the conclusion that a large majority of oil and sector, oil and gas sector workers could be displaced uh, over that time period. Upwards of uh, close to 500,000 jobs uh, could be displaced, uh, or roughly 75% of the oil and gas workforce, both direct and indirect uh, jobs in there. Uh, so, y- you know, what we wanted to do was we-, we we ended up kind of comparing that experience, that kind of combination of a, of an economic shift uh, combined with labor market impacts on the 1990s experience in the manufacturing sector and highlighted the potential for that kind of or, or level of displacement to kind of further exacerbate the, the social and economic ills that we see, you know, that we've been, you know, hearing about and reading about for, for low these many years now. And uh, so, you know, our, our focus of the report really was on the policy recommendations about how do we address uh, these kinds of displacements, so, you know, focus. Focusing economic development or clean energy development in, in, you know, communities and regions that are going to bear the the brunt of the impact, as well as, you know, the kinds of broad-based income supports that those workers might need, and most importantly, a complete overhaul or rethink about how we talk about retraining and upskilling this country to ensure that those who actually are displaced are able to kind of fully re-engage with the labor market of the future, whatever that looks like.
1: Well, that is a very thorough overview, and so let's first of all uh, drill down a little bit into your methodology. So, according to Petro LMI data, there are 178,000 oil and gas workers in Canada. So, when you're when you say 600,000 Canadians directly or indirectly employed, now we know that there's 870. Let's call them 880,000. Uh, 180,000 uh, directly employed. So. Uh, are the rest are indirectly employed. And by for those who aren't familiar with uh, this kind of language, an indirect job would be if, if uh, so a direct job is I'm an, working on an oil, oil and gas rig. An indirect job is I'm a machinist working in a shop that gets an order from an oil and gas company and that, that helps support my job. An induced job is I then go out with my colleagues for lunch and that money I made Working for the oil and gas project helps the, to maintain the cooks and the wait staff in the restaurant. Have I got that correct?
0: Yeah, I think that's that's the. Yeah, I think you got the majority of it. You know, really, when we're talking about the direct, I mean, the direct, I think is pretty obvious for folks to understand. Anybody who's employed by an oil and gas firm, what have you, the indirect really covers you know a wide range of, of possible uh, occupations. Everything from construction to downstream manufacturing, uh, anything, any kind of intermediate inputs that would be required in oil and gas. Uh, there's quite a lot of subcontracting in those as well. So a lot of small businesses in turn are dependent on the oil and gas sector. So there's yeah, quite a lot of those. Uh, you know, that would be displaced are actually those downstream industries that are you know, basically banking on the, on the upstream kind of direct oil and gas uh, sector to, to you know, produce those kinds of economic outcomes for them.
1: Did your study look at whether other industries, and I guess particularly uh, uh, clean energy, and that could be wind or solar and batteries, but it could also be hydrogen and, and other kinds of industries tied to oil and gas. Or, or not tied, tied to clean energy that those the rise of those industries would employ some of those indirect indirectly employed workers
0: that's an excellent question mark i mean i think this is really an important point of clarification that you know sometimes can get lost in translation when economists talk about the word displacement, because the word displacement can often get confused with job loss. Really, displacement is supposed to represent the entire spectrum of possible economic outcomes that one might face as they're being impacted by the clean energy transition. So, you know, when I say something like 475,000 workers are are going to be displaced, that includes people that, are, that could very easily transition uh, into a clean energy job of the future. Like you brought up hydrogen, for example, you know, a pipeline worker or someone involved in the construction of natural gas pipelines could notionally uh, find a job quite easily in either in either situation in which we might need to build new hydrogen pipelines or retrofit existing natural gas pipelines to move hydrogen. So to your point of those that, that might be displaced, we're already assuming that, that some who might easily transition uh, into a clean energy job will do so. But the point of the report is really to underscore that we should not assume that that transition will be simple for a lot of workers I think we you know the economic dogma of the kind of early 90s and, and through to the early 2000s was that when workers face these kinds of massive economic shifts automation in the manufacturing sector is the one that we talked about in the report. Econ- economics just assumed at that time that labor markets transition. People will upskill and retrain where they need to, go where they need to to find a new job, and it'll just happen. And the reality is that we found, you know, we've had 20 years, years of hindsight since then. And the reality is that it wasn't really all that smooth for a lot of folks. And that's what what we really wanted to underscore that risk.
1: Good point. Now let's talk about the industry, the oil and gas industry itself. So about 75 or 80% of the oil produced in Canada comes from the Alberta oil sands. And almost all of that is is exported to the United States. And I think that there is a, and and we should point out as well, that your study worked from the assumption of the, it was the International Energy Agency sustainable development scenario. And so you assume that uh, from now till the end of the study period that the uh, oil demand, oil. consumption in north america would fall by 50 percent so and so the question of remains is i even if we assume that it does fall by 50 percent is does canada lose 50 percent of its market share and i would argue because the oil sands crude is heavy and it almost has a captive not a, a, not a captive market in u.s refineries but it uh, heavy oil producers in Canada actually own a lot of refineries down in the U.S., so it's kind of a vertically they're vertically integrated. So you know they, they have a built-in advantage there. And it turns out that in the heavy global heavy crude market, uh, supply is tightening. Venezuela has lost a couple million barrels a day of production. Other production like Russia, some of that has been taken away. So Canada might actually find itself in a position where, uh, oh, and the other point I should make is oil sands producers, oil sands are generally considered to be high cost. And that's not the case anymore. You know, they've driven down their cost per barrel uh, to about 20, between 20 and $30, which makes them really competitive. They're gonna out-compete the Saudis, but they certainly can compete with the shale producers and, and, you know, other producers. So we've kind of got this, you know, situation where oddly enough, the supposedly uncompetitive oil sands might turn out to maintain a higher than 50 percent of its market share as demand comes down in North America. Sorry for bothering you with all of my my long-winded, uh, uh, you know, description here, but is that fair to say?
0: And you know what? I think that kicks off a great a great point about the uncertainty with which we're approaching this clean energy transition. I mean, if we even take a step back and we look at the IEA's uh, SDS scenarios, assumption about a 50% decline in consumption, you know, is that even, you know, is that realistic? Like what's the nature of how much we're going to see, um, you know, oil consumption decline, and obviously how much, you know, will we see production decline? What share of North American production will Canada have? What does the capital to labor ratio look like? All of those are important questions that we we need to ask. Uh, You know, how much do we transition away from oil and gas as, as a fundamental question is an important one well. But I'll throw another into the mix there, which is the kind of policy framework that we are approaching this question with between Canada and the United States. You know, the big conversation we're having right now is about the nature of border carbon adjustments and and how we're going to address those. There's a strong possibility, given COP26 coming up in Glasgow, that I think, in my opinion, that we could be seeing more momentum between uh, our our current government, the Biden administration, and uh, increasingly kind of stringent climate policy framework, in Europe to see uh, uh, potentially a carbon block happening uh, where perhaps all those that are willing to price carbon are going to collectively start to put border carbon adjustments up. And that potentially puts us, again, furthermore in favor of, of you know, establishing ourselves in a stronger North American supply chain. Because the reality is that uh, Canada has done an amazing job of lowering the emissions intensity of, of formerly very dirty oil sands uh, you know, over the last uh, several decades. So to think there are a lot of factors that lead to that level of uncertainty that you're pointing out as to how much we're actually going to see uh, uh, Canadian production decline as we see this shift away from, uh, dependence on fossil fuels in our primary energy mix.
1: I couldn't agree more. I have written I don't know how many uh, columns pointing out that all of these trends that are disrupting the hydrocarbon sector and disrupting markets and disrupting uh, finance, the finance sector on and on and on. This is a and the 2020s uh, regular listen, listeners of energy talks have heard me say this many times that the 2020s are setting up to be the big disruptive decade of the energy transition and yet in Canada too often we act like this is not disruptive that it you know the trends are gradual we'll have lots of time to uh, to adapt to them to you know we'll you know Alberta will still be around in 20 or 30 years as long as there's 70 million barrels at ABC. Jason Kenney of Alberta has said that I don't know how many times, and 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 they ignore all of these disruptive changes that you're talking, we've just talked about, and you you talk about in your study.
0: No, I think you're absolutely right. I think we are really headed. I, I mean, this really feels, you know, as if. The, that that critical mass we've always needed to really see the clean energy transition through—it's starting to really pick up. I think we're all really uh, we're gaining a lot of momentum in the policy conversation and public support for for climate change policies. All of these things are are, are really picking uh, are really picking up, and it's it's very encouraging to see, quite frankly.
1: Well, let's talk about your uh, three recommendations for the just transition policy framework. So let's talk about. Um, a redesigned retraining and upskilling framework. And we mentioned, touched on just a little bit earlier about these technology, the digital technology that's being adopted within the oil and gas sector. And I think, but this is true of all almost all in- industries uh, in Canada, you know, automation and AI and all of it. It's it, Really we're re-engineering business models here is, is what we're doing and even if there wasn't a decline in oil consumption and, by extension, oil production, we probably would still have to do this anyway because of the disruptive nature of the digital technology on the, work- on the workplace.
0: Right, absolutely, and you know certainly new technologies. Uh, you know where we're seeing major impacts on lowering the emissions intensity of oil sands, like steam methane reforming, uh, uh, and uh, you know using carbon to to uh, enhance for enhanced oil recovery. All of these different things, I think, are. Changing the skill set within the sector itself, and you know, really pushing the bar on the kinds of uh, on the kinds of workers that you might need up the skill curve. And, you know, and and in fact, we we've seen very much a, a similar thing again in the manufacturing sector in the 90s and 2000s, where previously it was very manual, routine jobs where it was people on a line doing doing physical uh, physical tasks, and it shifted to robots, automation, engineers, technicians, maintenance workers uh it, you know within the sector over a very rapid period of time and uh, that's part of that of that displacement. I mean we don't necessarily need to be in some sort of kind of major transition for transition forces to be at work to your point.
1: Now in Canada, education is the jurisdictional responsibility of the province. so it's, you know putting in together a, a national training plan is no small task in your opinion are the provincial governments uh, well on their way to this and and uh, are they headed in the right direction
0: you know what i and i think this is this is the real challenge here i mean you know mark and I, I i think you in your experience you've probably seen the same thing how many of our national policy challenges are really just jurisdictional issues of trying to find the right balance between the role of the federal government and the role of the provincial government. You know, so, so it, and I think skills and, and, uh, and retraining and upskilling is exactly that. To their credit, every provincial government and including the federal government I've spoke to is really, really intent on addressing this issue. Talking about sector transition plans, talking about skills, putting in some plans in place. Uh, but I think that the, the linchpin that, that we're missing is that coordination aspect. And this is where, for us, this is what, what what kind of underlies our major recommendation, is we looked at a country like Singapore, who's largely being viewed as a, as a leader in skills and retraining currently because of the the, the, the programs that they have in place, where basically they've gone out and they've looked at every possible industry, tried to identify every career pathway and every, um, every occupation within those sectors, and then tried to identify the specific skills and competencies within each of those. I'm not really one to just say like we should adopt somebody else's program wholesale, especially a country that's as geographically and economically concentrated as a country like Singapore is. It would be far more difficult to just apply that to, uh, to Canada as a whole. But that being said, you know, I go back to this point we were discussing earlier, but the uncertainty with the clean energy transition. It is very difficult for somebody right now looking down the barrel of the clean energy transition oil and gas sector worker or you know someone who's an indirect oil and gas sector worker whatever to look at a retraining and upskilling program and say and say yes I'm going to do this this is going to get me the job down the line because it is uncertain if we look at going back to Alberta if we look at the just transition framework for uh, displaced coal sector workers that happened you know, a number of years ago, I believe it was 2014, 2015, uh, the the concern that was consistently being raised was exactly that. How do I know that the program I take will actually get me the job? And that's where I think the work has to be done. We need deeper collaboration between not just the federal and provincial government, but with industry itself, who are providing the information as to, okay, I don't know exactly know, uh, I'm Suncor, I don't exactly know what the clean energy transition looks like, but I at least have some clue. Here's what I know. You tell me what you know, where you think federal government or provincial government you want to invest in, whether that's you know rare earth mining or battery technology or whatever. And then we need to align that identification of skills, that taxonomy of skills that we've identified that we'll need, and actually link that up with service providers who run the gamut, mind you, from post-secondary education institutions to you know, unions, uh, and actually align service providers with that taxonomy of skills so that people can actually be certain that the training they take will be helpful.
1: Well, that makes way too much sense. <laughs> we'll see if Governments can can mobilize themselves to do it. Uh, well, let's talk about the second one. To the extent possible, focus clean energy infrastructure and development within the same communities that bear the brunt of the energy transition. So you mentioned coal. That, that's a perfectly good example. Now, what do you have in mind? Do you have, you know, like you build a solar or wind farm near a, a, a formerly a mining community? Is that the sort of thing?
0: Uh, I, I, and again, this is this is the real crux of the to the extent possible. Uh, you know, we know for a fact that Alberta and you know places like Saskatchewan, New, to a lesser extent, Newfoundland, are going to bear the brunt of the clean energy transition. You know. Carbon-intensive industries focus there, what what have you? But we also know that given the topology of those provinces, there's actually a tremendous amount of opportunity to build wind and solar and other renewable energy projects. Uh, you know, if, if we're talking about synthetic hydrocarbons or other kinds of, of new technologies to replace, uh, you know, you know, normal fossil fuels, again, there's plenty of opportunity in places that are already doing that kind of work. So we know the opportunities are there. The reason we we called for what many might might consider an, an, an anti-market recommendation by actually saying we should focus it and we should dictate where development happens. The reason our recommendation came out like that was again, a reflection of happened to the manufacturing sector where you know we just assume people would would move and and things would transition and and very smoothly in the way that economies move and the reality is that that simply didn't happen so rather than uh, people moving out of the communities that's that went into decline they stayed there and those those communities just got carved out that were dependent on a single employer or a single sector Uh, and you know if we look at the social and economic ills you know we're still f- facing the economic consequences of those of those challenges mind you and if we look at the social ills of today you know the things that we that we kind of complain about constantly it's not that difficult to make the connection between those ills and the economic disenfranchisement of those same communities that got carved out so really the the purpose of our recommendation is to prevent that same thing from happening in in carbon t- Communities that are dependent on carbon uh, carbon intensive uh, industries, as an example, you know, we're not particularly worried that Vancouver or Toronto are going to be carved out as a result of this. No, it's going to be the Athabasca region. It's going to be Cold Lake nationwide. Oil and gas only represents what some one and a half percent of the labor force. Go to those communities, and it's as high as twenty five percent, and that's just direct. Let alone the the indirect and the induced. To your point, so you know, really, our focus there is just to to not further exacerbate the consequences that we know will happen if we don't uh, play a more proactive role in deciding where clean energy development happens.
1: Well, number 3 on the list is broad-based income su- supports and I think this is actually a, an area where the federal government can play a big role.
0: Absolutely. You know, we're already seeing some of that with the with the Canada Training Benefit, you know, to their credit they're taking their cue from other programs again like the Singapore program to introduce like an individual skill account. That grants a lifetime amount of up to 5,000 uh, that will support you if you want to take retraining, expanding EI eligibility for those that are taking time off, protecting EI um, training leave, things like that. You know, those things are going to be important, but at the end of the day, you know, the, I think that the challenge here is the spectrum of issues that someone that is going to be deplaced, displaced will face. In particular, we know that there are quite a lot of oil and gas sector workers that are mid or late career, you know, issues around Pension losses and whether or not someone at a more advanced age will will be able to to make a simple transition, you know, those are our more open questions. So on the you know what we called for was just a more holistic picture about how we view income supports beyond things like the candidate training uh, candidate training account and what have you.
1: I, I think this is an important question because I know uh, out of work middle aged petroleum engineers or geoscientists. And their skills are not transferable. Now, you think an engineer is an engineer is an engineer. That is not the case. And if you're 50 or 55 and you've spent you know 30 years designing wells downhole, and suddenly you know you want to go into mechanical engineering or, or civil engineering, something like that, that, just it doesn't happen. And I and I have uh, you know anecdotes of younger engineers who you know put in five, 8, 10 years in the in the oil patch. And then they go, you know, I'm tired of this, you know, industry. I want to move into another industry and had a really hard time uh, making that transition. And some of them actually couldn't do it. So I I think that gives us a little bit of an insight into just how challenging this problem is.
0: Right. I often, you know, I think we, we can often dismiss how difficult it is for some people to transition, you know, because the reality is that skills are not something that you can just kind of flip on and off with a switch. You know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a macroeconomist by trade. It wouldn't be a simple task for me to just pick up and become, a, you know, a, a, a trade expert that's that's completely familiar with trade laws and and you know WTO issues and things like that. Like it's it's not that easy for someone to just pick up. So and to that exact point, you know, we raised the concern that you know what if one of those engineers did want to become a you know a solar engineer or what have you that does you know works on photovoltaic cells or what you know whatnot. Uh, you know, is five thousand dollars really going to cover any potential tuition that you might? Might need to take probably not it'll help you know certainly that's the case uh but the reality is that again this transition is not going to be smooth for many
1: well francis thank you very much this has been a fascinating discussion and i think that the problems that canada is having with its high- uh, high, uh, it's carbon intense industries like, like hydrocarbons uh, is probably going to be replicated in one way or another by, you know, other regions and jurisdictions, I mean, you could think of the Permian Basin down in West Texas, or maybe, you know, some of the, the North Sea uh, communities that rely on, on oil and gas, and uh, so perhaps uh, some of the issues we've discussed today Uh, will, you know, help policymakers or others, uh, maybe workers, uh, think through some of those issues. So thank you very much for this. Appreciate your insights. It's been a pleasure, Markham.